Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I knew a man once who tried to save a tree. It was a magnificent red oak planted in the 19th century. Through numberless winters and springs and summers and autumns, its roots had penetrated deep into the soil. And its trunk had grown tall and strong. Generations of families and friends and lovers had gathered gratefully in the shade of its broad canopy. And the man loved the tree and held it sacred. But the tree grew close to a building, and one day the owners of the building decided it needed to be improved and expanded. The tree would have to be cut down, they said. And so the man who loved the tree wrote letters and social media posts to try and change their minds. He organized others and enrolled political leaders in his cause. Save the tree, they cried. The owners were unmoved. It's true, they said, the tree is old and beautiful, but it's actually not in very good shape. It will die soon anyway. Besides, they said, we have no choice. We've examined every alternative, and none is practical within our budget. The tree must go. Outraged, the man assailed their motives and integrity. His letters and posts grew more acerbic and sarcastic. At last, his belligerence and ill temper drove away even people who also cared about the tree and might have helped save it. And so the tree was cut down. And all who saw its severed limbs couldn't help noticing how healthy they looked. And the man cursed the owners for their stupidity and short-sightedness. This good, good man, who loved trees so profoundly and so passionately, had not learned from them. His feverish, frenetic activism was nothing at all like a tree. He championed the sacredness of trees while neglecting the sacredness of human beings, including his own. He knew the worth of trees, but not the peace of trees. Don't we all make the same mistake, at least some of the time? More than half a century ago, the Trappist monk and peace activist Thomas Merton warned, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs. Activism and overwork. 
The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism, Merton said, neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. The frenzy of our activism destroys our inner capacity for peace and the fruitfulness of our work. Actually, Thomas Merton was lucky. He died before Twitter. Twitter, that twilight zone of snark, contempt, adorable animal videos, occasional inspiration, and permanent outrage where I've wasted far too much of my time. It's easy to be punitive and make others disposable, cautioned Tom DeWolf and Jody Geddes in the little book of racial healing. The difficult task, they say, the difficult task is in telling the truth in ways that seek healing and transformation. We are beset today by a host of daunting challenges, all of them urgent and interconnected, many seemingly intractable. From patriarchy to white supremacy, from public corruption to secret abuse, from Islamophobia to transphobia, from gun violence to armed insurrection, from mass incarceration to mass extinction. It's natural for us to feel grief, anger, fear, even despair. I'm a climate justice activist. Despair is my constant companion. By now, <laughs> by now it's almost an old friend. It seems every new report coming from the scientists is even more depressing than the last. As Lily Tomlin once observed in a completely different context, things are going to get worse before they get worse. The realization that it's too late to prevent significant global warming, too late even to prevent vast suffering, has had a surprising effect on me. Instead of making me more anxious and agitated, somehow I, it has calmed and steadied me. For decades, as a climate activist, I felt like I was in a rowboat above a thundering waterfall, rowing frantically to keep from going over the falls. Well, the boat is going over the falls. We are plummeting, tumbling, crashing into the unknown at vertiginous speed, and yet somehow at the same time in slow motion. Terrible things are happening and will happen. 
Millions, I believe, will suffer and die with the worst impacts upon those least responsible for the problem, people of color and people living in poverty all around the world. But it is never too late to save the next life or the next species. It is never too late to do the next right thing. I vow to do everything I can to reduce the suffering, to tend to the wounded, and to build a more just world. But since I I, I do think it's too late to head off catastrophe, I am resolved to do these things mindfully, with love and compassion and tenderness and generosity of spirit. Because given the certainty of suffering, the how is as important as the what or even the when. Our climate future is not binary. Everything's going to be wonderful or everything's going to be awful. Ecotopia or dystopia. The future will almost certainly have elements of both. And where the balance between them falls will depend upon an infinite number of choices. Our choices, your choices, the choices of our children and their children and their children. We don't know what's going to happen. I hope that the human species survives the crisis we have created. But whether or not we do, we know that life on Earth has already survived five major extinctions. Life will endure. And intelligent life will continue to evolve with luck and the grace of God, not only smarter, but also wiser, kinder, more compassionate. As we confront this crisis, Potawatomi botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer reminds us, we don't have to figure out everything by ourselves. There are intelligences other than our own, teachers all around us. If we understood that, Kimmerer says, imagine how less lonely our world would be. So as we struggle to save our trees, what can we learn from them? One thing we can learn is patience. When we are in mortal danger, patience can be hard to cultivate. Trees can help us. Trees take the long view. They have to. Many live hundreds, even thousands of years. Longevity counsels patience. Now, by patience, explains Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron, we do not mean enduring, grin and bear it. In any situation, instead of reacting, suddenly we we could chew it, smell it, look at it, and open ourselves to seeing what's there. The journey of patience 
she writes, involves relaxing, opening to what's happening, experiencing a sense of wonder. To be patient means to slow down. On an exposed cliffside in the Canadian Great Lakes is a white cedar that's taken 155 years to reach the towering height of four inches. That's taking it slow. Even when a tree is under threat, it responds slowly. When a caterpillar begins to chew on an oak leaf, it can take an hour before defensive compounds reach the leaf to repel the pest. The hectic pace of humans takes a toll on our activism, our relationships, and our souls. We can be peaceful in our fervor, insists Charles Eisenstein, and patient in our urgency. In a society hyped up on hyper-individualism, Trees remind us of the interdependence of all things. Far from the solitaries, they sometimes appear. Trees are deeply embedded and active in a community of interconnection, which forest ecologists sometimes playfully call the wood-wide web. Whether by interlacing root systems, fungal networks, or release of chemical scents, trees warn each other of predators and harmful insects. They can even share nutrients with each other. According to ecologist and Shimshian native Dr. Teresa Ryan, when a tree in a warming forest dies, it donates its carbon not to its own offspring or even to others of the same species, but to the newest arrivals in the forest, those most likely to survive the temperature increase, a bequest of generosity akin to altruism. Trees model for us the power of commitment, of choosing to be rooted in one place. When a seed takes root, it makes a lifelong commitment to that very spot. There it must adapt or die. Now, our commitments need not be absolute, but they call us to strive and to struggle to honor our relationships, our communities, and our principles. Commitment demands persistence, and trees persist through high winds, torrential rains, heavy snowstorms that bend their branches, and, and ice storms that break them. If you've ever seen a tree clinging to seemingly naked rock, its root tips stretching to every particle of available soil, sucking in the tiniest droplet of moisture, you know what persistence looks like. Trees teach us to live with loss. Every fall, deciduous trees surrender their leaves as they fall to the forest floor, enriching the soil not only for themselves, but for all who share their ecosystem. And trees endure the deaths of their companions from wind, fire, storm, 
disease, logging, and old age. Trees embody the perfection of imperfection. Admiring an old maple in Connecticut one time, I was, I was struck by its, its sinuous beauty. Looking more deeply, I realized its beauty lay precisely in its irregularity, its imperfection. Had it been perfectly straight, perfectly uniform, perfectly symmetrical, it would have been grotesque. Only human beings make things that way. God knows better. Maybe, just maybe, I too could accept my imperfections as a mark of beauty. When I spend time with trees, I sense somehow their humility, kindness, and love. I used to think it was anthropomorphic to ascribe human attributes to non-human beings, but I no longer think so. Actually, I think it's anthropocentric to think so. We are all sentient beings. We know that plants feel pain and distress. Why shouldn't trees in their own way feel love? If you doubt that, I invite you to spend more time with trees touching their bark, gazing up at their leaves, and just listening. Trees have been among my wisest and most reliable teachers. As a child, Howard Thurman, who would grow up to become one of the great preachers of the 20th century and a spiritual advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., as a child, he discovered a unique relationship with an oak tree, in his backyard. I could sit my back against its trunk, he remembered, and reach down in the quiet places of my spirit, take out my bruises and my joys, unfold them, and talk about them. I could talk aloud to the oak tree and know that I was understood. I too, sorry, it too, was part of my reality, like the woods, the night, the pounding surf, my earliest companions giving me space. Today we need love more than ever. Climate and racial justice advocate Mary Anais Hegler confesses that love is what keeps her going. I don't mean any simple, sappy kind of love, she declares. I mean living, breathing, heart-beating love. Wild love. This love is not a noun. This is an action verb. She can shoot stars into the sky. She can spark a movement. She can sustain a revolution. I love this beautiful, mysterious, complicated planet we get to call home. I love that nighttime symphony on steamy southern nights when the frogs croak and the crickets sing and the owls hunt. I love the delicate feel of honeysuckle petals and the warm, grainy earth and dewy grass on my bare feet. This love is strong enough to break through the terror. She's hot enough to burn through anger and turn into fury. 
She can shake you out of your despair and propel you to the front of the battlefield. It's a love that can also, even in the teeth of these most insurmountable odds, give me hope. If I'm brave enough to accept it. I'll let the trees have the last word. With the assistance of their friend and interpreter, the late poet Mary Oliver. When I'm among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say. And you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. Amen. And blessed be. Our benediction is by Stephanie Kaza. Let go of the place that holds. Let go of the place that flinches. Let go of the place that controls. Let go of the place that fears. Listen. The wind is breathing in the trees. Walking in the night, I practice courage accepting the vastness of what I cannot see. Our worship has ended. Our service begins. Amen.
please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.